Good morning, everyone. Good morning and happy Easter. It's so good to be with you guys uh, today and in this beautiful place celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, if you have a Bible or a device or something like that, turn to Luke chapter 24. That's where we'll be today. Uh, typically, you know, Easter is like really uh, cheery and hopeful and all that stuff. And it is. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I want to look at a text of scripture that might actually be a little bit more uh, melancholy. So I apologize for that if you're like, wait, I was not expecting this. Um, a little bit more melancholy today. But it is the Easter story. So I'm not going to rob you of that. This actually happened around the resurrection. So Luke chapter 24, verses 13. I wore a bright shirt just to brighten the room up because this sermon might be a little different. Okay. I've never done this before. Uh, teaching on this text like this, but I want to read it to you. And it's a strange story because it happens right after the buzzing of angels everywhere and the excitement of the resurrection. You meet these two disciples. Only Luke, Dr. Luke, tells this story and his gospel account. And um, it's called the story on the road to Emmaus. So let me read it to you. It's verse 13. I'm going to stop at verse 24. So I'm going to read it, and then uh, we'll do what we traditionally do here at our church. We pray for illumination, that God would open up our mind and heart to hear what he might want to speak to us today. So let me, let me start. Let me just read this to you. Now, the same day, same day, meaning the same day as Easter Sunday. This is the first Easter. Two of them were, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that happened. And as they talked and they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you guys talking about? It's so funny. Um, it really is. That's just awesome. Uh, they stood still and their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last three days? What, what things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, power in word and deed before God and all people and the chief priests and all rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all these things took place in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. That's our text this morning. Let me pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God in you are, are all, all wisdom and knowledge. And I pray that you would open our eyes so that we may see the wonders of what you have done for us today and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom through Christ our Lord. Give us help today. Give me strength today. Give me words. In your strong name, Jesus, amen. Amen. The human heart runs on hope. It's been said that humans are hope-based creatures. Without hope, it's hard to, to even get out of the bed in, uh, during the morning, some mornings. If you've ever experienced a period of your life where you've been in despair or even have experienced depression, 
what that feels like, that the felt experience of that is a lack of hope. Because hope is the foundation of everything. Hope drives what we do. I mean, why get married and why have kids and why see doctors? Why work unless we hope that it will make some difference or that what we do matters or in some way it even lasts? Hope drives everything. It's the fuel that the human heart runs on. One theologian put it like this, what oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to the meaning of life. But what happens when you lose hope? In our text this morning, we meet two disciples of Jesus who were walking away, away from Jerusalem toward the village of Emmaus, some seven miles away. They're walking away on Easter, like the first Easter, where some of their people, even their own friend group, said that Jesus is not in the tomb and they can't find him and there's angels buzzing about. They're still walking away from that. As they were walking away and they were discussing with each other how Jesus had been crucified just two days earlier in Jerusalem, as they were conversing, Jesus approaches them on the road. The resurrected Jesus approaches them. He just strolls up behind them like, yo, hey. And they didn't recognize him. We'll find out the reasons why they didn't recognize him later. And he asked them, why are you guys so discouraged? I mean, you, guys, you're, you look downhearted. This is the way you guys are walking, your body posture, your body language, your tone, your faces. You're so sad. What's, what's going on with you guys? And they responded, well, wait, don't you know? Where have you been? Which is a funny question considering the context, right? Like, wait, well, where have you been? Are you kidding me? Don't you know what's, what's happened the last days here in Jerusalem? And Jesus plays curious. I, I, the, the, you see, I, I see a very playful side of Jesus here. He's like, what? What are, you, I don't, what are you talking about? Just plays curious. What, what happened? And they answer by saying that Jesus... A powerful prophet of God who they thought was, gonna, was the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the savior, who was powerful in word and in deed, was handed over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And they, what they say to Jesus is that when he died, our hope died with him. This verse, 20, uh, Luke 24, 21, has haunted me for years, for years. I can't, every time I read Luke, this, word, this phrase sticks out, but we had hoped. We had placed our hope in Jesus, and he died, and when he died, our hope died. What they're saying is that their faith and hope in Jesus is now in the past tense. They used to hope in Jesus. They used to have faith in Jesus. We had at one time placed our hope in him, but that is dead now. See, the feeling of disappointment to the point of losing hope is one of life's toughest emotional experiences. That feeling of being let down to the point that you lose hope in a person, that you lose hope in a marriage, that you lose hope in a friendship. This can even happen in your relationship with God. You've lost hope in God. At the end of last year, New York Magazine ran an article about the science of disappointment. And this article was saying that the pain brought on by disappointment is not just emotional, it's physiological. There's something that physiologically happens in our brains when we experience disappointment. Because the feeling we get when we are disappointed, the article says, is linked to the brain chemical dopamine. 
Now, you might know what dopamine is. Many of you know it's the pleasure chemical in our brain that's released when we have positive life experiences. Something good happens to us or we do something good and boom, this little shot of dopamine happens. But scientists have learned that our dopamine systems are responsible for more than just making us happy or making us feel good. This article says that the research points, that do- points to the fact that dopamine in our system and in our brains don't just make us feel good when something good happens. Dopamine has a role in our brain linking actions, experiences, people, and environments all to pleasure. It maps it all out. So it remembers, okay, you did this action, this experience happened with this person and this environment, and then it maps it all out. And then what the dopamine chemical does in our brain is it pushes us to predict what we want or what we think we need, and then it fuels our motivation to seek it out. Dopamine. It's amazing. It works like this. Your brain will generate expectations about your future. Often these expectations are based on what you want, what you long for, what you hope for. They might be based on actual hard data. Something you perceive as good has happened in the past. So you begin to expect, you begin to predict that it will or should happen again in the future. But before you are, before what you are predicting even happens, your dopamine levels begin to rise in your brain. You begin to feel a rush of anticipation. And then when that good thing actually occurs to you, you get a double shot of dopamine. You find yourself soaring. You find yourself feeling satisfied. This happens to me every time I go to my favorite restaurant in the city. <laughs> like, I think about it all week long. It's like a happy place for that week. Like, I'm going through it. I'm like, oh, but I get to go there on that day. And then my, that, all the, the little pleasure chemicals in my brain go, oh, yeah, okay, Dave, this is, that's going to be awesome. And then I I show up there and then the sights and the sounds and the smells and then the anticipation rises and then I eat the meal and then it explodes in my brain. (laughs) This is is it. This is that, that feeling. And that feeling can be done over all kinds of different experiences that we have. We see how this works in our relationships. We begin to trust someone like a friend, a spouse, a family member, a boss, a coworker, a boyfriend, girlfriend, and our brain begins to predict that they will treat you in a certain way so that you feel good and as a result you develop an expectation and your dopamine levels rise and it's a beautiful thing. It's the way that our, our brain works. But here's the problem. Life doesn't always give us what we expect. Our relationships are not always what we hope for. People fail us and people hurt us. And what happens when you don't get the desired result, what happens when, you, when someone fails you, what happens when the thing that you expected to happen doesn't happen? What happens then? Well, the article says that physiologically your dopamine level levels plummet from the heightened state generated by your expectations so that you crash doubly hard. Not only do you not get what you wanted, you also feel the displeasure of being wrong. Researchers call this reward prediction error. My dad used to call it, don't get your hopes up. (laughs) Now, what's the point of this? The article says this. Losing, here's the point. Losing hurts even worse when it's not what you were expecting. But you can probably see the problem here. We can't help from hoping. And we can't help from expecting. 
It's wired into the chemicals in our brains. We are hope-based creatures. And so this haunting phrase still haunts us even on Easter Sunday. We had hoped. These two disciples should be a test case for a reward prediction error in the brain. They had expectations of Jesus. As he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey on Palm Sunday, everyone in Jerusalem shouting, Hosanna, save, Lord, save. The dopamine levels in Jerusalem that day must have been soaring, the highest of all time probably. They had expected that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem and take his place as king, as savior. He would be the one to redeem. For them, they would, he would be the one to redeem Israel from her bondage and the one who would finally rule the world with truth and justice and what Hebrews calls shalom, peace. And so they had these great expectations so heightened. But Friday happened. The cross happened. Jesus was taken and he was crucified on a cross. And there was never a more gory and bloody scene than that. Jesus' crucifixion, though it was common during that time, was different. And Jesus didn't even fight back in his crucifixion. He didn't even let the disciples try to protect him. Sure, they were, they were just fishermen and a couple business guys, but at least they had, like one of them had a sword. One of them at least had a sword. But Jesus didn't even let them fight back for him. He actually went to the cross completely defenseless. He didn't make a defense for himself. I mean, they're throwing at him accusations that did not stick, that could not stick. But he didn't defend himself. And then they started to beat him, and he did not fight back. And all of their expectations of what Jesus would do, how strong he would be. I would imagine their disappointment with Jesus because they knew that if they will they would do this to Jesus, what will they do to the people who follow Jesus? Jesus, aren't you going to protect us? Aren't you going to do something? We've seen you walk on water. We've seen you calm the seas. We've seen you open the eyes of blind people. We've seen you cast out demons. Like, you can handle a couple of centurions. Like, you can handle a couple of Romans. You can handle them. What are you doing? We had hoped that you would be the one. We had hoped that, that you would do this. We had hoped that you would act differently than this. And they had placed all their hope there. And then when Jesus didn't fight back, and you have to understand what they witnessed, what the disciples witnessed was horrific. They, they saw their, their leader naked, bloodied, beaten, spit upon, shamed, hung on a cross, squirming around on the cross, just trying to get air, crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? They, they, they're seeing this. They're watching this. And when they're watching this, their hope just completely shatters. The thing is, they thought he was going to be the king of the Jews. And they're calling him. They're mocking him. They put a crown of thorns on him and they go, oh, hail king of the Jews. And the thing is that they weren't just mocking Jesus. They were mocking the disciples because the disciples thought Jesus was the king of the Jews as well. So they're mocking everyone involved, and they felt ashamed. Friday was, Friday Jesus was crucified, and it hit them doubly hard. They had plummeted from their 
heightened levels of expectation, and they fell so hard, in fact, that by Sunday, they had lost all their hope. So, if you were to ask me to pick one biblical text to describe the faith situation as I see it today, in the climate of the last year or so in our nation, in our city, and the people that I have talked to and ministered to, if I were to choose a story from the Bible to answer the question, what does it feel like right now to be someone of faith? I would choose this text. It would be the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus on Easter Sunday without hope, deeply discouraged, their once firm faith shattered. I think, and I believe, for hundreds of you in this room, if you were to allow yourself to admit it, this is where you are in your faith life today. Some faith dream that you have had in your life has been shattered. Some hope that you've had for humanity finally getting along and making some progress is broken. You, may, you might have lost faith in our political system. You might have lost faith in a loved one. You might have lost faith in one of your leaders. You might have lost faith in your marriage. You may have lost faith in your own willpower. And you're coming to grips with the powerlessness that you have to even change yourself. And it's finally coming upon you and it's scaring you to death. But you're like, I actually don't have the power to change myself. You may have lost faith in the way you thought your life was going to play out when you wrote your life plan in your early 20s. And you wrote it down and you're like, spiral notepad. And you're like, in your mid-30s, you're like, what is happening? And you're losing faith. You thought the world was a certain way and it's not that way. And you've lost faith. And maybe you've even lost faith in Jesus. And you're still around, kind of, but your hope that Jesus was going to do for you what you thought he was going to do for you a few years ago? Or maybe when you were a teenager at Christian camp? You're like, this is what Jesus is going to do for me. None of those things have panned out, and you know that your hope is like gone. You're still showing up. You're like a shell of a Christian still. You're like showing up and doing, you're here at Easter at least. You're showing up, but you know that, that inward hope is gone. This is you. This is you on the road to Emmaus, walking away from your faith dream, walking away from what you had thought Christianity was, you thought Jesus was, you, who you thought Jesus was. And you're slowly making your way away. You're tiptoeing away, slowly. Maybe less attendance, less prayer, and you're backing up slowly. I think all of us can find a reason to say with the disciples, we had hoped but pardon me for pointing out the obvious. These two people walking on the road, discouraged, faith shattered, hopeless, are actually walking with Jesus. And they don't know it. They're talking with Jesus, but they don't recognize him. I mean, just think about that for a second. Think about, if, even if you want to think about that as purely symbolic, just think about it. You and your hopeless state, thinking that you're walking away from Jesus and all the while he's there with you, you just don't recognize him. All the while you're actually conversing with him, but you don't see him. Just think about that symbolically. They're walking like, I, this, is, this is not what we thought it was. And we had even heard that he might be raised from the dead. Yeah, that still doesn't matter. Like, I, I can't get over that crucifixion. 
I can't get over how he let me down. I can't get over that. I'm going this way. And all the while, Jesus shows up. And let's look at how this happens. He walks up to them casually, not overwhelming them. This is not beaming white clothes Jesus with like a pop of glitter or whatever. This isn't trumpet. This isn't angels. This is casual Jesus. Casual resurrected Jesus, but casual Jesus. Walking up behind them. And then he starts to converse with them. Why are you downcast? What's, what's wrong? Why are you guys so bummed? And because of the crucifixion and what just happened. And then, this is what's so interesting. Jesus plays naive and has them explain to him their interpretation of the crucifixion. Which I think is, you got to pay attention here. This is, this is huge. He's like, okay, could you guys explain to me what you thought happened from your perspective? Yeah, let me explain it from my perspective. We had followed Jesus all the way to Jerusalem and we thought he was going to be the Messiah. We thought he was the one. And then they crucified him. He was handed over by the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders and they crucified him on the cross and he's gone, he's buried and someone probably took him from a tomb. Oh, that's, that's how you saw it go down, huh? That's your interpretation of what happened, huh? This is the key to why they can't recognize Jesus. Jesus says, give me your interpretation of the events that happened and cause you to lose hope. How do you see it? Could you tell to me? I mean, guys, I would ask you, let Jesus ask you this question right now. Maybe if you've never even had an interaction with Jesus, let him at least allow me to ask you the question. Think about that. Would you just think about how you have interpreted the events in your life that caused you to lose hope? How do you see it? I mean, that's a question. How did you see your life going Give me your interpretation of it. How did you see your marriage going? Give me your interpretation. How did you see politics going? Give me your interpretation. Give me your interpretation of the event that crushed your heart and your spirit. And so we answer. This is what I expected. This is what I had hoped. This is why I can't trust anyone anymore. This is why I've lost faith in men. This is why I've lost faith in women. This is why I've lost faith in the church. And they did their version of this. They, they did their version of it. We have our version. They did their version. They had hoped Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem the world. But he died. And he died shamefully and bad. It, it was a bad death. It wasn't a noble death at all. It wasn't noble. It didn't look noble. It looked horrible. And that was the end of it. See, so I think... If we could admit this to ourselves, and it seems childish to do so, but I'm going to give you the permission to, maybe if it's just secretly. If you could be so bold as to admit that you have, this life has disappointed you, because what's going to happen? As soon as you, you allow yourself to go there, you're going to hear a voice in your head that says, the world doesn't give you what, what you expected. Get over it. We hear that. We want to hear that. We hear that. Like those voices. But just if you could, just for a second, allow yourself. Allow yourself to, to, to go there. Allow yourself to think, well, yeah, the life, faith, marriage, dating, whatever it is, work, the city, didn't give me what I expected. And I'm, mad, I'm, I'm actually mad about it. And it's really hard for us to go there. 
It's really hard for us to go there, especially when it, when it comes to faith in Jesus. When Jesus lets us down, it's really hard to say, you let me down. What we do instead is we just disengage. We kind of pull away. We stop going to church. We stop praying like we once had. Or we stop praying for the thing that hasn't come because we've prayed for it for two years and it's not here yet. And we're like, some and stop praying. We start shutting off. We do this with others as well. When people disappoint us, we start shutting off to our spouse. We start shutting off to our friends. People disappoint us and we just like close in. We just like self-protection. It's like, no, you're not going to hurt me again. There's no way. Maybe even sometimes we start going to other ways to get dopamine, like literal dope. Sometimes we go to pleasure. We go to comfort. And what does Jesus say to them? Well, we didn't read it, but it goes on to say this. Jesus says to them, right after they go, this is what happened. Jesus says to them, you're you're being foolish. I mean, (laughs) no longer casual Jesus, right? You're like, whoa, okay. Um, I don't even know you. Hi. Um, (laughs) He says that. He goes, you guys are being foolish and you're being slow to believe. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. What he does is, do you see the pattern? Didn't you know the pattern? Suffer and then glory, suffer and then glory. That was the pattern. You didn't see that? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is disillusioning them. Yeah, you heard me right. He's disillusioning them. Disillusion is, f- is a freeing or being freed from illusion. And this is probably one of the best things to happen to you if you, are a f- if you come to faith in Christ, that Jesus likes to disillusion people. That's what Jesus is doing. He's freeing them from the illusion of their expectations. He's freeing them from the illusion of their false hopes that were penned on a Messiah on their terms. He was freeing them from the illusion of what even following Jesus is all about. And maybe this is, what the, this is why I love this story so much. This is, why, this, this is what the strange story of Easter is about. Maybe this is what Easter is all about. What if Easter was really all about disillusionment? It's about Jesus showing up to us and saying... This is who I really am. You have all these ideas because you're American, because you're Western, because you're, you, you have this socioeconomic background, because you grew up in that church or this church, or you didn't grow up. You have all these ideas of who I am. And the resurrection says, no, 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 no. listen, this is who I am. This is who I am. And this is who I really am. Because I need to disillusion you because you have an illusion that needs to be broken. He goes up to them, these disciples, and say, you can let go of illusion now. You can let it go. You can let go of the illusion that Jesus will make everything easy in this life. That's an illusion. There is no exception clause to pain, even for Christians. That's an illusion that needs to be shattered. Jesus went through the cross, through it, not around it, through it. Let go, you can let go of the illusion that Jesus has left you, that Jesus has abandoned you. That's an illusion. Because on the road of hopelessness, Jesus can show up so sneaky that you don't even recognize him. Like so, so sneaky that like 
I'm thinking of a movie, I don't want to give it away, but like movies where you play the, the end at the beginning and then the whole thing makes sense. And he could do that, show up and say this, and you're like, oh my gosh, you were there the whole time. You can let go of the illusion that we have to keep our life together and present it to Jesus and hope he accepts it. Like I have to have this perfect life. I have to keep it all together, my family together, my life together. And then at the end of life, I'm going to present it and like, oh, did you, what, is this good enough? That's an illusion. David Brooks, who is an author of several books and writes for the New York Times as a columnist and also teaches at Yale, he, he says this in a, in a lecture. He says that our secular society works by an economic logic. He says effort leads to reward and input leads to output. Investment leads to profit. That's how our world is ran. Secular society is ran on that. But he says Jesus t teaches a different logic. Not only does he teach a different logic, he embodies a different logic. And he calls this logic the inverse logic. The inverse logic of Jesus is not an economic logic. And this is how he describes the way of Jesus and the inverse logic. He says, you have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside of yourself to gain the strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desires to get what you crave. You have to, uh, success leads to failure, which is pride. Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. This is the inverse logic of Jesus. And what he does with the disciples is he goes to them and he teaches them the inverse logic. And the way he teaches them is from all of their scriptures that they would have known. It says all the Old Testament scriptures, he went through them all and said, no, this is what was supposed to happen. This inverse logic, dying to be reborn. It's what I've taught you when I was on earth. This is the way. And what he was telling the disciples were, you cannot accept Easter until you're willing to accept the cross. Christianity is not just about Easter Sunday. It's about the whole Holy Week experience. It's about Jesus humbly coming into this world. It's about Jesus taking on the cross for us and then rising from the dead. And because this inverse logic is true, what Frederick Buechner said is true. He said, the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. That's what the resurrection is. And that's what the resurrection is about. That's what Jesus is showing up to show them. Now, you might be asking, well, what, okay, what is the difference here? What are you saying to me that's different than what my life coach told me last week? Like trials to triumph, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Wait, wait, I thought... I thought, what, what, you're, not, you're sounding a lot like my life coach. What is the difference here? Here's the difference. Follow that logic all the way through to the end. Where does it end up? Sometimes it ends up that it does kill you, and that's the end. A lot of times it ends up in death. A lot of times, oh, every time it ends up in death, by the way. And not just that, but there are times when you don't get out of suffering. You don't. You will not, you do not get out of suffering. And there is nothing to change that. That is a reality. What's the difference here? You follow this logic all the way to the end, and there's a resurrection. You follow this logic all the way to the end, and there's eternal life. You follow this logic all the way to the end, and there's salvation. You follow this logic all the way to the end, and you get it 
As C.S. Lewis says, you get it all. Now, a few years ago, philosopher Luc Ferry wrote a book called The Brief History of Thought where he compares all the philosophies throughout the ages since the beginning of philosophy. And he says at the end of his book that there is no greater philosophy than Christianity. He's not a believer, by the way. He says, I grant to you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compare with Christianity, whose promise of the resurrection, provided, that is, that you are a believer. See, there's something about this here. Even as you look, if you're looking at it today as a secular person, just like, I'm not a person of faith. This is, this is, this is, this logic. You know this logic's real. You know this logic's true. And this is the gift of God to us. Like this is, this is it. And I believe by, by the power of the Spirit of God that Jesus has a way and really awkward, sometimes sneaky ways showing up and just saying, it's true. This is true. And I've been with you. And I've been trying to tell you this is true. And the difference between this and everything else that you think you hear, that at the end of this, there's resurrection. And so what C.S. Lewis said is true. He said, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can ever make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. This is the hope and the promise of the resurrection. That the resurrection has a way to get into our lives and start working backward. Start making sense. But you know what's going to take? I believe that for some of us in here, we need Jesus to disillusion us, to say, no, that's not me. That's not me. Let that go. This is who I am. And I think that's the invitation for us. I really believe that's the message that God wants me to communicate to you today. There's all these things that you've built around Jesus. There's all these expectations that you have of him to do the thing in your life that you want him to do and all these things and you're like, if, and, and Jesus just says, you know, it's time to let that go. This is who I am. I am, I go to the cross, I raise from the dead, I bring life to dead things and I want you to give me all of your pain, I want you to give me the worst parts of you, I want you to give me the, your worst failures, I want you to give all this stuff because I use it, I use it all. I don't cause it, I use it all to bring about resurrection. Would you stand with me as we pray? During this time, I want to invite you. There are, we at our church, um, try to, with our bodies, uh, as much as we can with our bodies, uh, pray. Pray with our body. And we love as a church to kneel before God. And uh, this is an act of uh, humility. It's hard to run when you're on your knees. And sometimes you just get on your knees and you're like, I'm not running anymore, God. I want to invite you to do that. Maybe if you can, if you're able, you can come forward and kneel. But if not, if you're not able to do that, Maybe you're really, really high up there and you're like, that's 40 minutes down there. I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> you can just sit in your chair and in a, the same sort of posture with your hands open to God. Just go, God, I want to give to you my expectations.
the things I think you are, and maybe I need to let them go. I want to give to you the worst things that have happened to me and the worst failures that I have done, and I'm asking you for a resurrection. I want to offer them to you, God. And I want to ask, I want to pray for you. I pray that Jesus shows up and he starts to show himself who he is to you. That he starts to open your eyes. He starts to minister to you. The beautiful end of the story is that um, they have a meal. They don't see, they, don't, they still don't recognize Jesus. And then Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he blesses it. And at that moment, their eyes are opened. And they're like, Jesus! And then he disappears. <laughs> so crazy. Just gone, vanishes. And then it says, they don't even get to Emmaus. We don't even know where Emmaus is, by the way. No one knows. They don't even get there. They, at that moment, they head right back to Jerusalem, to their faith dream. And I really believe, guys, that there are people here that you grew up in church, kind of. You, you had, you made a commitment to Jesus kind of forever ago or whatever. And Jesus today just wants to say, this is who I am. And you start walking back towards your faith dream. You start walking back towards Christ. I believe again. I'm coming home to Christ. I believe that he wants to do that. Lord, as we respond now to you, as a church, I know there are people that are um, going to be coming to you, maybe the first time coming back to you, Lord. Or maybe just even for, the, for people that I know are faithful attenders of church that this, this, there's some unresolved stuff they need to deal with right now. Some unresolved disappointment, maybe some unresolved illusions of who you are. And I pray the resurrection right now would break through that. And not, maybe not in this huge dramatic way, but maybe in a very subtle way, like you showed up to these two disciples, that you would just show up. And maybe it's a rebuke that we need to hear. You're being foolish. Or maybe it's that encouragement to believe again. Or maybe, like Thomas, you just need to show us the scars in your hands and say, look, I've done this for you, and I'm back. I don't know what it is, Lord, but I trust your spirit right now is working and speaking and ministering. I pray that we step into that now as we respond to you. We pray together in the strong name of Christ. Amen.